0: might expect that the Massacre at Avericum that happened in our last episode would damage Vercingetorix's reputation among the Gauls. That Vercingetorix might feel a sense of shame or a loss of self-confidence and so hide in his tent like many a commander after a defeat. But if you thought this about Vercingetorix, you're mistaken. As I've said before, it's not for nothing that this man is Julius Caesar's great rival in the Gallic Wars. Rather than hiding away the day after the massacre of Varicum, Vercingetorix calls an assembly and boldly stands before his army. There he gives a rousing speech to his countrymen, at times comforting them, at times using logic to explain how the Romans had won through trickery rather than courage. But perhaps most importantly, Vercingetorix reminds the Gauls that he had always been against defending Avaricum, that it was always his intention to burn the city. It had been the Baturge's tribe who had convinced him against his better judgment to defend the city. And look where that had gotten them. In other words, this defeat was not Vercingetorix's fault, and had they listened to him, they wouldn't be in this predicament. Finally, Vercingetorix ends on a note of hope, promising his followers that he will unite all of Gaul, and that once united, no one will be able to resist them. This speech fires up the Gauls to such a degree that not only does Vercingetorix not lose any prestige after this loss, he actually gains prestige. The Gauls are impressed by his foresight and his confidence. They love that the defeat at Avaricum hasn't made him lose faith in himself or his cause. And so Vercingetorix sets them to work, sending envoys all over Gaul to tribes who haven't yet joined his rebellion. He also gathers additional forces to replace his losses at Avaricum, including large numbers of archers, infantry, and cavalry. Organized as ever, he sets quotas for troop levies and requires they be gathered by a specific date. And in case they need any extra motivation, Caesar says it was the customary practice in Gaul that the last man to arrive at the army would be tortured and put to death as the army watches on. It definitely pays to be early in a Gallic army. Now, as this whole Gallic assembly is happening, Caesar has other problems to deal with. One of his staunchest Gallic allies, the Idawi, have come to him with reports of what you might call a stolen election. You see, two different men of the Idawi are claiming to have won the election to Virgobret. Now, this is a problem because only one man can be Virgobret any given year. It's like the US president, there can only be one. And this has become such a contentious issue among the Idoi that even their Senate, and indeed their whole population, is divided into factions over this. And so the Idoi have come to Caesar to resolve this issue before it erupts into civil war. Now, Caesar needs this whole mess like he needs a hole in his head. He's just inflicted a defeat on Vercingetorix, and he wants to keep on the offensive. He's in the midst of a war, and they want him to come settle their petty legal dispute. But Caesar knows that if he ignores this, the Eidewe will end up in a civil war, which means no grain for Caesar's army. Or, even worse, one of the two claimants to be Virgobret will appeal to Vercingetorix for help. And that will be disastrous. So Caesar has to drop what he's doing to resolve this dispute. But he can't even summon these men before him to do that. You see, Virgobrets aren't allowed to leave the tribe's territory. And both men claim to be Virgobret, which means that Caesar has to go to them. Because if either man leaves the territory and goes to Caesar, of course he can't possibly be Virgobret then because the can't legally leave the territory, or else he really is Virgobret, and that's just acted illegally. So it's an impossibility for these men to come to Caesar, so Caesar has to go to them. So, after collecting his two legions that had been guarding the winter baggage, Caesar heads to the territory of the Idawi, hears out both sides, and decides on a winner of the election. This is a man named Convictor Latavis. Caesar then tells the to put aside their differences and instead look forward to the rewards they will earn from Caesar once the conquest of Gaul is complete. And yes, those are Caesar's exact words, or at least a translation of them. He does say the conquest of Gaul is complete. It's interesting, because so often in the commentary, Caesar will refer to this as the pacification of Gaul, as if the Gauls, you know, they're a bit rowdy up there in the north. They're aggressive, they drink too much, they're hairy, they're headhunters, and sometimes they burst into Italy and attack Rome, so I'm just up there pacifying them. We're just cooling them down a bit, right? It sounds much nicer to say pacification. But every once in a while, and this is the only instance I can think of off the top of my head, Caesar just slips up. It's almost like the mask comes down, and he openly says, the conquest of Gaul. Caesar also orders the Ottoe to supply him with cavalry and 10,000 infantry to defend his supply lines. The Ataoui didn't really think Caesar was going to bring his war with Vercingetorix to a grinding halt to resolve their election mess without getting something in return, did they? Well, Caesar then divides his own forces into two. He sends his right-hand man Labienus with four legions and half the cavalry to attack the Sinones and the Parisii. And fun fact, the Parisii tribe is where modern Paris gets its name from, since Paris is located in what was the territory of the Parisii in Caesar's day, and even well before Caesar's time. But getting back to our story, Caesar himself takes six legions and the other half of the cavalry and makes for the town of Gregovia, the capital of the Averni, who are Vercingetorix's tribe. To get there, Caesar needs to cross the Allier River, but Vercingetorix knows this, and he and his army are already on the other side of the river. So Vercingetorix dismantles all the bridges over the Allier River, and he also sets guards in all the locations Caesar might try to build a new bridge. So Caesar arrives at the river, and of course, there's no bridges to cross the river with. And he can see the Gallic army just across the river. It's this interesting thing where both armies are facing each other, but there's a river between them, so they can't reach each other. So Caesar begins marching along the river, looking for some kind of crossing. And on the other side of the river, Vercingetorix and his army mirror Caesar and the Romans, following him on the opposite riverbank. But still, Caesar can't find a way across the river. So one day, while marching along the riverbank... Caesar pitches camp in some woods that obstruct the Gallic view of his army. These woods are also near to a bridge that Vercingetorix had destroyed already, but the piles of the bridge are still intact. The next morning, Caesar has four of his legions, with the baggage train, march out of the woods, and he even has some of the cohorts spread out to make it look like all six legions are marching out of the woods, rather than just four. Meanwhile, Caesar stays in the woods with just two of his legions. And of course, that morning, the Gauls see the Roman army marching out of the woods, take the bait, and follow the four legions along the river. Later that day, when Caesar feels that both armies have encamped further along the river, he brings out his two legions from the woods and starts rebuilding the bridge. And once the bridge is complete, Caesar marches his two legions across and builds a fortified camp on the other side of the river. He then recalls his other four legions. And when Vercingetorix follows the four Roman legions back the way that they had came, he is shocked to see Caesar having already crossed the river and built the fort there. And so he retreats by forced marches to avoid battle with Caesar. Remember, Vercingetorix's strategy in this war is scorched earth. He wants to avoid battle with the Romans and instead starve them out. The Romans then continue marching, and after five days, Caesar and the Romans arrive at Gergovia. Right away, Caesar rides out to inspect Gergovia's defenses, and soon decides that it will be impossible to take by storm, and that's saying something for Caesar and his army. Gergovia is located on a high plateau with rolling high ground around it, and Vercingetorix has camped his army on this rolling high ground, with every tribe in his coalition responsible for holding a specific position on this high ground. And since the defenses of Gergovia are so strong, Caesar would normally put the town under siege and then starve it out. But he's prevented from doing this because the Idoese convoy of food hasn't arrived yet, and it's more likely that Caesar will run out of food than Vercingetorix. So Caesar decides to have his army build a fortified camp for now, as he thinks on a plan of action. Eventually, Caesar decides that if he can't cut Gergovia and Vercingetorix off from food, he'll instead cut them off from water. So at night, he attacks a hill at the base of Gergovia, occupied by the Gauls. Before the hill can even be reinforced from the town, Caesar takes it. And from this position, he says it seemed he would be able to cut off the Gauls' main supply of water, and prevent them from foraging for food. And he seems to say seemed because the siege goes on after this, so evidently he did not cut them off from water. But even still, Caesar then builds a fortified camp on the hill that he had just taken, and leaves two legions to guard it. He then connects the main camp, meaning the first one that he had built, to the new, smaller camp via a set of 12-foot-wide ditches he digs on either side to protect men going back and forth between the camps. You have to imagine these two camps connected by two parallel ditches that act as a sort of hallway that allowed the men to walk between the two parallel sets of ditches without being harassed by enemy cavalry. Now, as all this is happening, some shenanigans you might call them, are going on amongst Caesar's ally, the Aedui. The new leader of the Aedui, who Caesar had just ruled in favor of, Convicta Latavis, has accepted bribes from Vercingetorix's tribe, the Averni. Convicta Latavis then shares these bribes with a number of young noblemen and tells them to remember that they were born free and born to command. He also tells these young noblemen that the Aedui are the only thing standing between Gaul and certain victory, and he thinks it's about time the Aedui take the side of Gaul rather than Rome. These young noblemen are won over by Convicta words, and perhaps even more so by his money and his bribes. And chief among these young men is a man named Ludovicus and his brothers. Ludovicus is put in charge of the 10,000 men transporting the food to Caesar's army while his brothers go on ahead to join Caesar. And when the food convoy is only 27 miles from Gergovia and where the Romans are stationed, Ludovicus stops the convoy, calls over his warriors, and puts on the performance of his life. With tears streaming down his face, Ludovicus tells his men that all the Idawee cavalry and all their nobles with Caesar have been put to death. Even prominent aristocrats were executed without a trial. Litavicus even goes so far as to say that all of his own brothers were killed in the massacre. He then calls over some Idawee warriors to speak. These men, who Caesar says were coached on what to say beforehand tell the army that everything Lidovicus has said is true. They say there was an allegation that the Idoi had tried to negotiate with the Averni, and so they had all been put to death. And the men telling the story say that they managed to survive by hiding and then escaping the Roman camp conveniently. The 10,000 Idoi warriors listen to all this and then beg Lidovicus to tell them what to do, tell us what to do. Litavicus, who's been waiting for this exact moment, tells them that there is only one thing to do. March to Gergovia, join Vercingetorix, avenge the deaths of their brethren. Litavicus then points out the Romans in the food convoy. What these guys are still doing standing there during this whole speech, I can't comprehend. They should have been long gone before the speech finished. The Aedui then seize these Romans, steal their property, and torture them to death. News of this massacre eventually reaches the Aedui in the Roman camp, and one of these Aedui, a young nobleman, goes to Caesar at midnight and informs him of the situation. Caesar says in the commentaries that these events caused him much anxiety. But anxiety or not? Caesar says he acted without an instant's hesitation. That very night, Caesar leads four of his legions and all of his cavalry out of camp and marches towards the convoy of the Aedui. Now, this causes an obvious problem as there's only going to be two legions left in a camp designed to be defended by six legions. But despite this, Caesar says there was no time to make the camp any smaller as, in his words, the whole outcome seemed to depend on haste. Caesar also orders the arrest of Ludovicus' brothers, who are with the army, only to find out that his brothers have already fled the Roman army. So Caesar, along with his four legions and the cavalry, continue their march, and through Caesar's urging, they march 23 miles in the first day. And when the Romans do finally catch the Aedui column, Caesar sends his cavalry out to stop them from continuing their march, but gives them strict orders not to kill anyone. Caesar is determined to try to defuse the situation and to keep the Adui as an ally if he can, mask her or not. Caesar also orders two Adui noblemen to go with the cavalry and to show themselves to their countrymen in the column. And when the two noblemen do this, it changes everything for the Idawee Column. You see, these two noblemen were supposed to have been killed in Caesar's supposed massacre of the Idawi Cavalry. Lidavicus had told his men that they had been killed. And yet, here they are, alive and well, working with the Romans. It instantly becomes clear to the Idawee Column that they've been lied to by Lidavicus. Caesar says the Adaui in the column began to throw away their weapons, hold out their hands in a sign of surrender, and beg the Romans for their lives to be spared. And when Lidovicus sees this, he and his dependents flee the Atawi column and go straight to Gergovia to join Vercingetorix. Now, as I said before, Caesar wants more than anything to preserve this alliance. So he shows mercy and forgives the Idoi column for massacring their Roman comrades. He then sends messengers to the territory of the Idoi to let the rest of the tribe know that he had every right to kill these men. Make no mistake about it. But as an act of generosity, he will spare them. This message is meant to both admonish and to encourage the Idoi at the same time. Caesar's letting them know that they behaved treacherously, and he knows it, but at the same time saying that he forgives them, and there will be no vengeance on his part. Then, after giving his army only three hours to rest that night, Caesar marches them back toward Gregovia. So, all is well, and the ida crisis has been averted by Caesar, right? Well, not quite. Caesar doesn't know it yet but Litavicus sent messengers of his own to the Idoui right after he had massacred the Romans in the food column. And of course, those messengers had been sent before Caesar's. These messengers were ordered to tell their tribe, the Idoui, of the supposed massacre of Idoui cavalry and nobles in the Roman camp, and then to tell the Idoui to avenge their fallen brethren the same way that Avicus had in the food convoy, by torturing any Roman they can get their hands on to death. Well, the Idoi are a tribe of ancient humans, so it doesn't take a lot to get them to act on their passions. And when they hear about the supposed massacre of their tribesmen, they act on it as a fact. Caesar says these men had several motivations. For some, it was greed. For others, it was rancor. And still others, simple imprudence. But regardless of motive these men back in the Idoi home territory begin massacring, enslaving, and seizing the property of Roman citizens, their allies. And the elected leader of the Idoi, the man that Caesar had chosen in favor of, Convicta Latavus, takes advantage of this and whips the Idoi into a frenzy. And Convicta Latavus's goal in doing all of this is the same as Ludovicus' goal had been in massacring the Romans of the food convoy. To get their tribesmen to commit atrocities against the Romans that can't be taken back, that can't be forgiven. Then, even if they eventually realize the truth and come to their senses, it'll be too late, and they'll have no choice but to join Vercingetorix's rebellion. The Idoi even offer a Roman military tribune heading for Caesar's army safe passage along with some other Romans. And when this group sets out, the Idoi then ambush them anyway. The Romans fight back, and many are killed on both sides. And this fighting between this band of Romans and the Idoi goes on for a day and a night until the Idoi decide to raise an even larger force and to attack again. But just as they are doing this, raising this larger force, they receive Caesar's messengers. And suddenly, they realize that it's all been a lie. They've been killing, torturing, and enslaving Romans for no reason at all. What's more, they realize that their countrymen are under Caesar's control. Virtual hostages. Because they're still alive, all of these men. Nobody was killed which means that Caesar has them in his power. So a number of the Idoi run to the Roman military tribune that they just had been trying to kill and basically apologize to him, saying that the attack was never public policy, but just some individuals acting out. They then start inquiries into the stolen Roman property and confiscate the property of Litavicus and his brothers. Finally, they send envoys to Caesar to, as Caesar puts it, clear themselves, which doesn't exactly sound like an apology. But though the Adui claim it wasn't public policy to attack the Romans, Caesar says that still, a large number of the Adui were involved. And so a large number of the Adui now fear for their future, fear for Caesar's retribution against them. So in addition to sending envoys to Caesar to apologize or to clear themselves— the Aedui enter into secret negotiations of war with the other Gallic tribes. And this is where we will leave the Aedui for now. Flash back to Caesar, and he's marching his four legions and cavalry back to Gergovia when word comes to him from his legate Fabius. Fabius, who is in charge of the Roman camp in Caesar's absence, says the camp is being besieged by Vercingetorix and a huge force of Gauls. And since there are so few Romans to guard the camp and to man the camp walls, they really have no reinforcements to take the place of tired or wounded men on the parapets. Meanwhile, the Gauls are throwing in fresh reinforcements constantly. And by the time Fabius sends his messenger to Caesar, many of the Romans have been wounded by arrows or other projectiles. Fabius is hanging on by a thread, defending a camp designed for six legions with only two legions. If Caesar doesn't reach him in time, the Roman camp will fall, and two Roman legions will be massacred by Vercingetorix. And that is where we'll end our episode today. In our next episode, Caesar will face Vercingetorix directly for the first time in the Battle of Gergovia. But don't go yet. We're going to have a sort of special segment that may be a recurring theme from now on uh, in each episode at the end of the episode. But first, we have an Apple five star review to read. This one comes from Airborne25, and he or she says, Captivating, a story of history told with passion and perfect detail. Must listen. Well, thank you so much, Airborne25, for leaving that wonderful review. Every time I get these five-star reviews and read them, it gives me motivation to keep on working, keep making new episodes, and keep on improving at my craft. So thank you so much. Also, let me say thank you to our patrons, Giancarlo, Peggy, Carrie, Scott, Laurie, Liga, and Dave. You guys are the silent heroes that keep this podcast going, and I will forever be grateful for your contributions. So thank you. And last but not least, a big thank you again to Doug, who, as I said a few episodes ago, made a very generous contribution on PayPal, so Doug deserves to be thanked a few times. So Doug, again I say, thank you. Finally, I'll end our episode with a historical quote. And if you guys like this sort of thing, I may make it a regular thing at the end of each episode to include a quote from some period of history. It doesn't have to be from Roman history, it doesn't have to be from Caesar... Sometimes it may be. doesn't have to be. Now, we have many tales of inspiration in the March of History. Caesar's life is full of him facing great odds, and with his great talent and charisma and hard work overcoming them. So, as a change of pace, let's start our end-of-episode quotes with one that is comical rather than inspiring. Though, I suppose it could also have the capacity to inspire, depending on how you view it. Napoleon Bonaparte's foreign minister, Talleyrand, who, by the way, was one of the most slippery individuals in all of history, once said of Napoleon simply, and I quote, what a pity the man wasn't lazy, end quote. Now that line always makes me laugh, because if you have ever read about the life of Napoleon, you know this man had an unbelievable capacity for hard work. And this idea that maybe... If he had been a little bit lazier, Europe could have avoided all those Napoleonic wars. Always makes me chuckle. Of course, Napoleon was far more blunt and far less diplomatic in his thoughts on Talleyrand. Once telling Talleyrand to his face, and I'll give a warning here because there is a, a bit of bad language, so you have, if you have kids listening, maybe hit the pause button now or turn the volume down now. But Napoleon said of Talleyrand to his face, quote, Why you are nothing but shit in silk stockings, end quote. Another entertaining line for the history books. Napoleon is full of those. So that's it for today's episode. Like I said, if you guys like this, we'll do quotes like this at the end of each episode from now on. Just let me know, and I will talk to you on episode 62 of the March of History for the Battle of Gergovia.